We're using the Apostles' Creed as a map along the way. So when you think of the Creed, think of it like a map that it can guide us along the way. And so we're thinking about the essentials of the Christian faith, and, we've, and we're walking through the Creed to see what those essentials are, and the Creed's going to guide us along the way. It's known as the Apostles' Creed not because it was formally written by the Apostles, but because it captures the essence of their teaching. And really the most basic thing, we said this last week, the most basic thing to know about the creed is this, that it is a summary of the Christian faith. It is a beautifully poetic and theologically precise summary of the faith. It's beautifully poetic, it's memorable, and, and yet it is theologically precise. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna jump into the first part of the creed today, I'll show you the whole creed at the end of the service and invite you to recite it with us if that is what's in your heart to say. We're not going to just say it, but if that's what you'd like to say, then I want to invite you to do that at the end of the service. And next Sunday, we have a little takeaway for you that has the creed, the version we're using, and you can use it as a bookmark. Uh, we'll have that for you hopefully next next Sunday morning. But today, we're going to look at the first of three parts. The creed has three parts, and it has three parts to remind us that God is three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Today, we're going to look at the first part, I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. I'm sorry, I just have to pause for a moment in the middle of this introduction and say, Kyle and Gail, it's so good to see you guys. Like, I'm flashing back. I'm flashing back here, and you know, we got a little uh, Jones thing working on this pew, and a sublet has wiggled her way into that. And Kyle and Gail, it's awesome to see you guys. So, um, kind of lost my place when I m made eye contact with them. And don't you miss them? It's sweet to see them. Yeah, where was I? Uh, oh, the Creed has three main parts, and we're going to talk about the first part today. God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. Now, let me, a couple of qualifiers from last Sunday, in case you were not here, but they're worth repeating, uh, that I want to put on the table early in our series. First of all, the creed is not the Bible. So, we're preaching the scriptures, and we're preaching the gospel, but I'm not really preaching the creed. The creed doesn't have authority on its own. It derives its authority from the word of God and from the gospel. So every time we say something in the creed that lines up with the scriptures and the gospel, right, that's where it gets its authority, uh, not as a standalone thing. And so um, I'm not preaching the creed, I'm preaching the Bible. It might be helpful for you to think of the creed not as the book, but as the table of contents. Oh, it's about this and this and this. That's where the book is going to take me. So think more of the Think of the creed more like a map or a table of contents than the scriptures, you know, scripture itself. That's the first thing. The creed is not the Bible. Secondly, Christians don't believe in incantations uh, or religious chants. Do you remember Star Wars Rogue One, the guy who's blind, but he's got this amazing lightsaber, and he goes out to battle some stormtroopers, and he's kind of caught in a shootout. He's like, I'm one with the force. The force is with me. I'm one with the force. The force is with me. I'm one with the... You know that guy I'm talking about? Okay. We don't believe that. We don't, we don't walk around saying, I believe in the Father. I believe in the Father. I believe in the Father, so he can get me out of this mess. That's not how Christianity works. It's not an incantation, so you can't just jump in on what we're going to recite at the end of the church service together 
and like automatically become a Christian. That's not how Christianity works. If it really is mingled with faith from your heart and soul, like if, if you can mingle faith with this confession, I believe in God the Father Almighty, then the gospel becomes real to you. So that's what we're, we're not doing. We're, it's not the, Creed is not the Bible. We don't believe in incantations. What are we doing? We said three things last week. Here's what we are doing. Here's how the church historically has valued the creed. For 1,800 years or so, almost 2,000, almost two millennia, the church has found great value in the creed. Uh, we said last week for at least three, three reasons. It brings clarity, maturity, and unity. We talked about personal clarity and theological clarity last week, and, and by personal clarity, we meant I have to decide whether or not I believe this, not my parents, not my grandparents. It, it really becomes a crisis of faith moment for me to decide, can I say with the church, I believe? It brings personal clarity in that sense. We also talked about theological clarity. We're going to get a little more theological clarity today as we talk about the doctrine of the Trinity and who God the Father Almighty is. So that's clarity. We talked about maturity. The second thing that the church has valued about the creed historically is that it forms us. It matures us in our faith in Christ. It's got an instructive, formative, maturing um, value to it. So it, it helps us to be balanced, not unbalanced. It helps us to be more symmetrical in our thinking, not asymmetrical. It helps us to, to mature until we're all fully formed into the, the fullness of the Son of God, right? Ephesians chapter 4. Talked about that last week. Third thing we talked about last week was unity. Clarity, maturity, and unity. Unity in the sense that the creed ties us to people who believed before us, who believed before us, all the way back to the upper room with the rest of the disciples, the first band of disciples. So the creed collapses, one author said it this way, the creed collapses time and space, ties us to the ancient church, and it ties us to the global church because all over the world today, in different time zones, in the same one day, all, through, all, the way, all the way around the world, all time zones, people will confess these exact same words. That's awesome to think about that. That people, people 12 hours ahead of us are saying, I believe in God the Father Almighty, or said that if they worshiped in the morning hours. It also unites us to one another. We find gospel unity in the creed. It gives us directional unity as a church. It keeps us focused on what matters so that we don't have to rethink every week. What are we going to try to do to make this church exciting? What are we going to try to do to connect with other people? What are we going to try to do to, what, what should we do next to, 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 we get directional unity from the gospel and from the creed and it really keeps us centered. So that's what we talked about last week. This week we want to dig into the phrase, God the Father Almighty, and then next week we'll do maker of heaven and earth. When the Bible talks about God as Father, 
it combines three essential ideas about who God is. And I would say these three ideas are uniquely Christian. No other world religion holds these three concepts together. Another world religion might have one of these concepts, but it doesn't hold, but no world religion holds these three concepts. Christianity is unique in its understanding of God as Father in these three ways. Number one, He is Father in the Godhead. He's Father in the Godhead. Let's begin back in Matthew 6, verse 9, where Jesus taught us to pray. Look at those words with me again. Our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy be your name. Our Father in heaven. He is the Father Almighty. One of the things Jesus has in mind when he's instructing us to pray like this is that the Father Almighty in heaven rules and reigns over heaven and earth. That's part of what he's wanting us to see. He rules as an infinitely powerful and, this is what the the concept of God as Father has in it, he's infinitely powerful and intensely personal. Both of those things are true of our Father in heaven. It's his kingdom that is to come. His will will be done. He provides our daily bread. He alone can forgive my sins and implant in my own heart the kind of love that would grant forgiveness to someone who has wronged me. Forgive us our debts. And His power and benevolence combine to lead us not into temptation but to deliver us from evil because His is the glory and the power and the kingdom forever. So when Jesus says, pray our Father, when he teaches us to pray our Father, it's not something he's unfamiliar with. Remember, from John's Gospel, right, this past year we spent in John's Gospel, we saw over and over again that Jesus was teaching us who the Father is. Jesus came to reveal the Father. He came to show us who the Father is. The Son, the Son, the Son can do nothing of his own will, John chapter 5. He can't do anything of his own will, but only what he sees the Father doing. And he lets us into this relationship between he and his Father. Before God, this is a really important thought, before God the Father is ever our Father, He was first Father of the eternal Son and Spirit in the Godhead. He is the divine Father of the triune God, our Father in heaven. J.I. Packer, in the book we're recommending to you during this series on the Creed, which is available here in the Commons, Packer says this, A man who was God, this is a great sentence, a man who was God praying to his father and promising that he would send, he and his father would send another helper, points inescapably to God's essential three-in-oneness. And so does, he goes on, the cooperative activity of the three in saving us. The Father planning, the Father the architect of salvation, the Father planning, the Son procuring, and the Spirit applying redemption. The God of the Bible is a triune God, and the Father is Father in the Godhead. And Packer, if you're interested in helping your children or yourself, you're exploring the doctrine of the Trinity and thinking through what the Trinity means, he's done a super job in this book kind of introducing that concept to us. What I want you to see, especially this morning, though, is that in the Godhead, the biblical language of Father 
signifies both authority and love. We saw that in this relationship with Jesus throughout the Gospel of John. Both authority and love. Both order and affection. Both power and relationship. An illustration of this hit me during the holidays because we, we went back to Lord of the Rings and watched the Fellowship of the Ring again. And we, we love the, the Lord of the Rings movies and The Hobbit and all that. So I got back into the book and I, I read the same section that we were watching recently in that introduction to the first movie, The Fellowship of the Ring. So if you haven't seen it, basically here's what's happening. Bilbo has come to the place of realizing he has to let go of the ring and he has to, to pass it on to Frodo because Frodo's gonna do what should be done with it. But Bilbo can't seem to get it out of his pocket and give it to Gandalf. Gandalf doesn't really want it. He wants to, him to put it on the fireplace mantle. But all in the while they're having this exchange, Bilbo's just kind of clinging to the ring because he doesn't want to let it go. And Gandalf says, Bilbo, you still have the ring. Like, you're supposed to have put it on the fireplace or hand it to me so I could do it. And, and, and he's really having a hard time letting go of it. At that moment, and the movie pictures this so well, it's like Gandalf gets really large. And the text in the book says he gets terrifying and menacing. Bilbo Baggins! <laughs> you know, this is like intense. Do you remember that scene? It's intense. And, and Bilbo's like, oh, and he comes back to reality. And he pulls the ring out of his pocket. He's able to, to do it. How could one person be intensely terrifying and menacing and loving, caring, wanting what's best for Bilbo? Right? That's why we love Gandalf. We love Gandalf because he reminds us that God the Father, that's one of the things I see in the character, is that he reminds us of God the Father. He reminds us of the wisdom and the power and the affection and the love that can combine and be in one person. Oh man, we don't see this in a lot of earthly fathers. Earthly fathers are flawed and broken and, and we're going to turn to that in just a second. But, but man, we can see it in that image. Right? So, in the Godhead, Father combines both of those things, power and affection, authority and relationship. And, oh, there's a lot more that we could say about that first point, but I need to, I need to go to number two. So, the, when you read the Bible, the second thing you will see as you keep reading the scriptures is that Father not only refers to the Father in the triune Godhead, but he's also the Father of all creation. This is the repeated refrain of scripture. You see it in Genesis chapter 1. You see it in the Psalms. Uh, you won't see the word Father explicitly in chapter 1, but you'll see it in, in the Psalms and you'll see it other places in the Old Testament. It becomes clear and clear in the New Testament so that in this sense of Father, God is the one who creates all things and cares for all things. Creation and providence. Creation and providence, both tied to the concept of God the Father Almighty. In other words, there was nothing else in the universe or the multiverse, if that's how you like it. There was nothing in the universe or the multiverse until God the Father decided to bring the world into existence. So Christians believe in creation out of nothing. Creation ex nihilo. 
Nothing existed beforehand. The only thing that existed before God created was the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. He, out of his loving, gracious purposes, decides to create a world and to care for it. Creation and providence. Our own confessional statement, Baptist Faith and Message, says this, God as Father reigns. He reigns over his universe, his creatures, and all the stream of human history, all according to the purposes of his grace. He is powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, and all-wise. I also like the way Al Mohler describes it in his new book on the creed. He's talking about the fact that God is father to all of creation. He, he says this, the fact that any human being, listen to this, the fact that any human being anywhere exists and lives and breathes is a testimony to a paternal and benevolent creator. We owe our lives to a paternal and benevolent creator. Look, let me show you where this comes from. It's in Ephesians chapter, a little more explicitly, Ephesians chapter 3. Turn Turn forward past the Gospels, uh, past Romans, to Ephesians chapter 3. And there's this little, this, this, this little nugget of truth embedded in verse 14 and 15. It's really not Paul's main point, but he's going to go ahead and tell us anyway. And so 314, Ephesians 3. 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. So he's amazed by the gospel, enamored by the gospel, and he's kind of reflecting on that, and he's saying, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. And then he throws in this sort of parenthetical concept, which is for us today very important. I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, check this out. Paul's, Paul's actually teaching us something about families and where they come from and why they're on the earth. Family life, people, society, humanity. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. It's like he's got a little side note saying, by the way, I want you to know that every time you see a family with a father and a mother and children, you can just make this connection, that's a testimony to who the father and the progenitor, the creator of all the world is. He's a life-giving thing. So the fact that every family on earth has a father who had a father, who had a father, who also had a father, who had a father, who also had a father, all the way back to Adam, if you believe that kind of stuff, and I do, all the way back to Adam, whose father was God himself. Paul is saying God is the father of all creation. He's saying, you know, it's, it's written on the heart of every person to know that God is. To know that he exists. Somebody said that recently in our, in our membership class. One of, the, one of the families in our membership class, they're in the last hour. He said, I just think it's written on everybody's heart that God is. That God exists. So God is literally the father and progenitor and creator of the entire human race and all creation. 
the reason that we teach our children, and I think this is a really important series for our children, and I hope that if you still have children in the home, you will somehow make the best of this series and think about the creed, reflect on the creed, maybe recite it together as prayer or table talk at home. You could do it in, in many different ways. The reason we teach our children the creed is to establish in them as early as possible the conviction that God is our maker. No, that he is our father, not just our maker. Our creator, the one in whose image we live. I'm a, I'm a Martin Luther fan. I love the Reformation. I love Luther. He's one of my favorite theologians. I would have loved for Luther to be my pastor. I like Calvin, but I think I would like Luther to have been my pastor more, I, or Dietrich, one of the two. Um, and so, uh, so anyway, I love Luther. His small catechism was written to help teach and train the church. Luther wrote a catechism in order to help the church recover its gospel-centered life. And, and the small catechism basically is the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, and the Ten Commandments. And then he has an explanation for what children should think about each of these things. So here's what he says about this, I believe in God the Father Almighty. The, when asked, what does this mean, here's what the child would respond with. The child would say, I believe that God has made me and all creatures, that he has given me my body and soul, eyes and ears, all my limbs, all my members, my reason and all my senses, and he still preserves them. He also gives me clothing, he goes on, clothing and shoes and food and drink and house and home, wife and children, land, animals, and all that I have. He richly and daily provides me with all I need. He defends me against all danger, protects me from all evil. All this he does out of fatherly, divine goodness and mercy, not because of any merit or worthiness in me. And for all of this, it is my duty to thank and praise and serve and obey him. Man, I would love for my kids to give that answer. Would you love for your, would you love for your grandchildren? Would you love for your grandchildren to believe that? That God is so real to me that I see him as having created every aspect of my life. So, so an article like this, an explanation like this, affirms Father as creator. God the Father, the biblical language, the idea that God the Father is Father to all of creation. Now, one of the things that comes up if you affirm this is people will now ask, does that mean everybody is saved. Does that mean because he created everyone and loves everyone that therefore also it is the case that all people will be saved? And, um, and our reading of scripture is that, that that is not the next, that, that's not the implication of that. That's not, that's not the case. We don't believe in a universalism. We don't affirm that everyone would simply automatically be saved in the end. Yes, he's the father of all creation, but there's been a great rebellion against the father. There's been a great rebellion against the father. So the third point means, okay, yes, he is the father of all creation, but something ha has happened in between that and this third point, and that is there's been a great brokenness, a great rebellion, and so in order for him to truly be father in relationship, what has to happen? We believe a person has to trust in his son, 
given on our behalf in order to bring us back in to relationship with God the Father. That happens through adoption. So the third way that the Bible speaks very clearly about Father is that He is Father through adoption. He's Father through adoption. Maybe you have had a difficult experience with an earthly father. Well, no. In a room this size, many of us had a difficult experience with an earthly father. All earthly fathers are flawed, and by the time we as earthly fathers learn how to be better fathers, our kids are grown up and off to college, right? What I'd really like, Dad, is to borrow the car keys. See you later. Can I have them, please? Right? So we're all flawed. Every father in this room is flawed and is trying to figure out how to be a better father or a grandfather. Maybe, though, like some people that I've talked with, you had a seriously hurtful and even harmful, physically harmful relationship with your father. Maybe he was never there, distant, or the divorce kept you from being around him for years, or he was an alcoholic, or he was climbing the corporate ladder, too busy to be with his family. Or maybe he was angry all the time, physically abusive. Maybe your relationship with your father is such that you, you kept living like this, wondering whether you're going to get hit again. You know, some people, um, probably some of you in this room, have experienced physical abuse, which is uh, incredibly life-altering and hurtful. So you might be saying to yourself, I appreciate where you're going with this. I know it's in the Bible. I know it's in the creed. But I can't really think about God like that because it hurts me to think about God like that. So I want you to hear me. I understand, um, I understand what you're saying. I, I have not had your exact experience. But I do understand that you may be like maybe you lived under the threat, maybe you lived under, when he came home, maybe you lived for an hour or two every day under the threat of whether or not you'd get hit. That's not a fun place to live. But here's what I would ask you today to think about, and would you be willing, would you be willing to let the beauty of God and the beauty of the gospel redeem your concept of what a father should be? Would you be willing to let God himself, the perfect father, redefine true fatherhood? Here's why I'm asking you this. If you've got a Bible open, turn to Romans chapter 8. I want to show you something. In Romans 8, verse 16, uh, or 15, sorry, Romans 8, 15, let me show you something that really jumped off the page for me this week. Romans 8.15 says this, and Paul's, what Paul's describing is how you become a son of God, how you become a child of God, how you, how you get a right relationship with God, and he says, um, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but when you trusted Christ, you received the spirit of adoption as sons, and you can cry out, Abba, Father. Like you could say the word father and it would mean something to you. What Paul is saying 
is that divine fatherhood is a beautiful and amazing thing. And when you trust in Christ, the Spirit of God gives you the spirit of adoption. He makes you a child of God. And you can say, to, you can say words that you never wanted to say before. Maybe you were among that that I just described a minute ago, and you don't really want to say the word father. You don't want to say daddy. You don't want to call anybody that. Paul says, let the gospel give you reason to call him father, to call God father. The spirit... You didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, back into cowering, back into a reign of terror. No, no, no. You received the spirit of adoption. Now, that's the word I want you to center in on for just a second. Adoption. What on earth, what is it that makes adoption such a great image for salvation? Why did the apostles, especially Paul, Paul says it in Ephesians, he says it in Galatians, he says it in Romans, he loves the concept of salvation like adoption. So thinking about salvation as if it were you being adopted into a family, why is that such a good image for the Christian faith? I think adoption is, a, is an image for salvation for Paul because when a child, see, see if you agree with this, when a child is physically abandoned, he's hopeless utterly hopeless. When a child is physically abandoned, he or she is utterly hopeless. I mean, can you think of a more hopeless individual situation? I mean, you might be able to think of hopeless sort of, you know, a situation for a city or for, you know, natural disasters. I'm not talking about, can you think of a more hopeless situation for a human being than being abandoned as an infant? I can't think of a more hopeless situation. He can't do anything for himself. She can't do anything for herself. Chris Hall, Chris and Gigi, many of you know them. He's, he's sitting here in the front section, and I asked for permission to share this with him a few weeks back, um, share this with you a few weeks back. And so he didn't know it's coming today, but we've talked about it, and he granted me permission to tell you this. But Chris lost his dad a little while back, and uh, four or five weeks ago, three weeks ago, I didn't know this about Chris until we walked through saying goodbye to his father with him, but Chris was, was adopted, and he wasn't just, this is not just a good adoption story. Listen to this. The article that Gigi sent me about Chris and the first few hours of his life just stopped me in my tracks. He was born, and within about five or six hours, as the doctors reckon it, was left on the porch of a home on 3rd Street downtown in Roanoke. He has shared this before in a public context, and so some of you already know this, but I, I want to I point this out to you that the subtitle under the picture in the article, very first line, says abandoned. 
title of the article, Baby Only a Few Hours Old Left on Doorstep on 3rd Street. The baby had been wrapped in an old curtain and stuffed in a hat bag and just left there on the porch. Can you imagine a more hopeless situation for an infant than to simply be left somewhere? I, I can't imagine a more hopeless situation. Now, I guess left in the middle of nowhere, but this baby is left on a porch. And to hear Chris say at his dad's own funeral a few weeks back, you know, what he said about loving his father and being thankful for his father and mother, and I didn't even know at the time, as this is unfolding, that was not his real father. But, but Howard Hall and his wife found out about this baby left on a porch and said, we, we're going to step in. We have to step in. We need to buy him. We need to give him a home. We need to buy him shoes. We need to feed him. We need to take care of him. We need to adopt him, and we need to make him our own. Why is salvation used, why is adoption used as salvation imagery? Why is that used as salvation imagery? Because, because God the Father is saying to you, you are in a hopeless situation. And I want to bring you into my house. I want to buy you a meal. I want to buy you food. I want to buy you shoes. I want to put you in school. I want to help you grow up. And I'm going to be your father. It's a powerful image. Adoption is a powerful image because in and of ourselves, we are hopeless. That's what Paul wants you to see with the idea of adoption. He wants you to see that yourself, your sin, yourself, the evil one, the world, he wants you to see that all those things, they won't even leave you on a porch and ring the doorbell and run. Your sin, your selfishness, your, the world around you, they're not even going to leave you on the porch. They're gonna leave, they are going to leave you abandoned every time. Abandonment is, what I'm trying to say is abandonment is what makes adoption so powerful. Here's this hopeless child and a father and a mother say, man, we're going to step in, we're going to help, we're going to provide him a home. That's exactly what God does in his saving mercy through Jesus Christ. Let me tell you what the world has to offer you in comparison to God. In contrast to God, the world, here's what the world has to offer you. It won't even leave you on the porch. It will leave you abandoned in the middle of nowhere every single time. Do you remember the story of the prodigal son? Do you remember the story of the prodigal son who gets his inheritance and he takes off and he goes and he spends it all? And it's not until he is working for a farmer in, a, in the pig pen and taking care of the pigs that he comes to the bottom, that he comes to the end of himself. Do you remember this story? I like to, it's not in the text, but I like to in my sanctified imagination, as he's going down, you know, and he just keeps going down, 
before he comes to his senses, I like to imagine that he fell, but he didn't, he didn't slip in the feeding the hogs. He didn't just slip and fall backwards. I like to imagine that he slipped and fell forward right into a big pile of. You know what I'm saying? You know what I'm saying? That's how my boys talk at my house. That's how the boys at my house talk. You know what I'm saying? So, and then the, and then the Bible says, here's what the, this, is, this is in the text. He came to his senses. At the very bottom, in a hog pen, trying to figure out how to make enough money to have food to eat. He comes to his senses and he says what? You, some of you know this. I will arise and go where? And build my own kingdom? No. I will arise and I will go back to my father. And what does the father do? Is he standing at the gate like this? You should have done that. What's the father do? The father says, man, come home. I've been waiting for you. And he throws a party. And now he's not cleaning pig pen. He's, they're eating roasted, amazing celebration feast. And he experiences the beauty of adoption. It's like he's so distant that he's no longer a son, but he's adopted back. The father of adoption, that's like, it's such a beautiful image throughout the whole Bible that God is rescuing his sons. He's bringing them back. He's rescuing his, his daughters. He's bringing her back. There's been so much bad press about father language. And much of it for good reason from an earthly perspective. But when you read the Bible, you will see the Bible redeeming language of a loving, benevolent, welcoming, caring, gracious father who says, be my son and I will be your father. Be my daughter. Be my child. The only way that happens is when you come to your senses. Turn away from sin and self and the world, the flesh, and the devil, which will only and always leave you abandoned, probably not even close to a doorstep. So we want to bring back the language of, I believe in God the Father Almighty, who's not just the maker of heaven and earth, He's my father. I love him. I will trust him. I will let him redefine what fatherhood means. And so what I want to do is ask you to, to join me this morning in confessing your faith. Again, if, this, if, if we say this in just a moment, if you don't mingle this, uh, if you don't mingle this confession with true faith in your heart, well, it won't it won't mean anything, and it'll just be us saying it together as a church.
So let me ask you to just kind of quiet your heart and prepare yourself. We're going to put it on the screen in a second, but just take a moment while our instrumentalists are, are getting in place. Just take a moment and, and ask yourself, who do I believe in? Can I call God my father? Has he adopted me as his son, his daughter? Can I live in that? If you're a dad and you've made some mistakes, man, turn to Christ today. If you're a child or even an adult child and you're still hanging on to some resentment, turn to Christ today. If you're a wife struggling with a husband who was not the father he should be, turn to Christ today. In fact, turn to Christ who will turn you to the Father. And, and let's consider saying this together as if we really believe. And we'll say the whole creed together and make it our confession of faith this morning. If you'd like to join me, say this with me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, He rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.